out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the singer-songwriter Keely Moss, all the way from Dublin, um, who now just goes as Keely. And she's brought out various singles and albums, currently now on the label which is Dimple Disc Records and um, has recently brought out two singles Shadow on the Hills and also Where the Monster Lives Her work is mostly he says, well it's all based around the horrendously tragic and sad story of a German teenager who was murdered many decades ago while backpacking in Ireland and um, so she's also put together a website which is called the Keeley Chronicles which also documents a lot of this story and um, her sort of inspiration for her work. So it's an incredible, yes, she's an amazing singer-songwriter and artist. Um, So this is it. The quality at the beginning isn't that great but luckily she moves around the room a few times and it's better. So after several minutes of casual chat we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Keely, it's over to you. And that was the Smiths. I mean, in one sense, it was the Pet Shop Boys with West End Girls, which I heard as a child and band totally captivating and just fell under its spell. And then the other kind of even more significant awakening, I suppose, was that of the Smiths because the Pet Shop Boys caused me to fall in love with music but the smiths were my catalyst for wanting to be in a band and wanting to actually do music and devote my life to it and I suppose it it gripped me in such a, a firm grapple that um that was the moment that was kind of my my year zero essentially and everything I can kind of pretty much trace back to that point so it was it was hearing the Smiths for the first time, um, hearing songs off Louder Than Bombs the compilation, uh, the first Smiths album, all of which I heard many years after the Smiths had sadly imploded. Yes. Um, so I never got to actually experience them in real time, which would have been extraordinary. Um, but I did have that sort of catalyst, that that sort of cataclysmic moment. Yes. Of just this blinding yes. flash. What's it like? Because after, because when I sort of was getting to, you know, music, I didn't have to go back that far to sort of, you know, basically in a simplistic way to start start at the beginning, which was like basically sixty three with the Beatles and the Stones. Obviously, there was kind of blues and jazz and everything before that, and Elvis and Little Richard and Eddie Cochran. But that, you know, I didn't really have to go back that far. What's it like? You know, for latter, you know, younger people. I know that sounds so patronising, but you know, I mean, sort of realising there's all these different decades and all these different seeds. Because I think, wow, that's that's a lot to sort of pick through, isn't it? I mean, how do you navigate kind of going, going, sort of looking back at this sort of beginning of pop and rock, and then there's you know all the other genres as well, which were there before pop and rock. Yes, that, that, that's a good question. I mean, I suppose in my case, it was all the harder because I didn't have a guiding hand in terms of, I didn't have, you know, usually in a family, there's a, there's a cool uncle or a cool brother or a cool sister or father or someone like that who has their finger on the pop pulse or someone who just has that mouse to be able to show you the way and steer you maybe in the right direction. I didn't have that. You know, I, I've never really had a family member who, who was sonically savvy enough to be in that position. So it was really just that discovery. I was at the Gale Talk, which is this school, in this is like a summer school in Ireland where you're supposed to learn Irish, um, which I've always, been, I've always been spectacularly dismal at that the Irish language. Mm. Um, despite being Irish, it's not many people, not many Irish people can actually speak fluent Oscalga, which is Irish. There's a little bit there. <laughs> Believe me, that's about all I've got. So, but but my, my key discovery at the Gale Talk when I was a, a young teenager was of course meeting a boy who introduced me to the Smiths. And that was, and from the moment I heard that, it was a very, very, I remember it vividly. It was such a profound, um, what's the word? It's sort of a, 
it was a, a moment of clarity and it was such an, an an epochal event in my own life i remember where i was i remember what it looked like what day it was you know what what day of the week it was all of those things and it was it was like i could suddenly pinpoint what i wanted in life very very suddenly it was like it's that that thing there yes. that, sound, that guitar that collision of verbals vocals lyrics melody ethos everything that kind of came with it um but it was above all else it, it was the sound and it was the songs i mean this was before i'd seen a photo of the band before i'd seen any live footage before i'd seen any any visuals at all so it was entirely um very instinctive very instinctual and also very just very pure because there, there was no attendant hoopla there was no press hype the band had, had disbanded years prior at this stage. So I wasn't being lured by some sort of machination of the music business at all, which mm. is even nicer in a way. So once I discovered that that band and their disc- and gradually made my way through their discography, and there was a really, really key book, which was uh, Morrissey and Mar, The Severed Alliance by Johnny Rogan. And that book really was was my my starting point, not only in terms of learning about the music business and learning about the Smiths themselves, but learning about actually how, how to speak the English language. I, I credit that book with my the, the basis of my entire education. I and mean, I, I learned more from reading that book than I ever did in, in all my years in primary or secondary school. In, in Ireland, which is like in Ireland, we have a two tier system. I'm not quite sure how it is in the UK, but we have like primary schoolers from first class to sixth class. And then you do what's called secondary school, which is like, as with the Americans, we call it high school. We go from first year to sixth year. And it's all entirely unmemorable. And in some, you know, in some, some parts, deeply troubling and traumatizing, yes. depending on, on the sort of environment you're in. I was in a very brutal, very headmaster ritual-esque environment, which made it even more uh, fitting and even more um, even more impactful discovering that band when I did. Because um, it was I was on the cusp of of entering a very brutal schooling environment. Yeah, so, you, so the, the headmaster's ritual must have been a song you resonated with. Absolutely. Sir thwacks you on the knees, knees you in the groin, elbow in the face, bruises bigger than dinner plates. You know, it's all of those lines resonated. And I suppose as well, because probably like a lot of people who would have discovered the Smiths, um, I was a very singular, lone, you know, kind of a, a, a lonesome character in that I was on my own. I'd moved so frequently by that state. I'd moved 15 times by the time I was 14. So I'd never been able to stay long enough anywhere to, to, to make, make a group of friends and for that to continue. Um, and even so you can go, what I found was you can be in school and you can, you can just about ingratiate yourself and, and make yourself, you know, and meet people, a vague sense of, kinship with your mm. classmates up to a certain point but when you reach say the early teens where things become much more clicky and much more nasty and much more divisive and much more uh, faction based then you're kind of screwed and I was kind of screwed in that sense so discovering the Smiths that they were my be all and end all they were all I had as at that age I didn't have really I didn't have a boyfriend or I didn't have a I didn't have um friends I didn't have anything um I just had where you know but I, I had somewhere to live which at the time when you were a kid you, you know you take that stuff for granted I don't yes. take stuff for granted now but but that that band was my world and and just getting back to your original point and in terms of how how you navigate your way through all of the prior decades to me it was so thrilling because I had had no idea that there was an independent culture that there was this vast vortex of of not only music but 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 and and a different 
mindset, a different ethos, a different value system other than that of the mainstream. And it was completely alien to me until I found the Smiths. And then I realized beneath the sheen of the overground, overground quotes using the Banshees um, from the screen, there was just this seething cesspool of superb, you know, music and stories and um, everything that goes with that. So that was really exciting because it was through reading the Severed Alliance that I learned about Joy Division, that I learned um, about New Order. And around the time I'd started to kind of, other bands had started to crop up on my radar, like The Cure. I remember watching MTV one night, just, just coming across, they had this a triple play of Cure videos. And in particular, the video for A Forest, which I was absolutely fascinated by. Um, because it's it's such an eerie, murky song. It's obviously it's, it's a brilliant track. It's so hypnotic, but the visuals and Robert's that that's there in that video where he looks almost disembodied, and in particular the footage of the forest that is kind of overlaid, um, and this very spooky and um, kind of tinted color, like like a sort of a, a blood splotch on the trees. It's done in a very kind of quite kind of a psychedelic kind of way, but all of that was just absolutely ravishing, you know, mm. from my from my teenage brain to just suddenly, you know, be beset by all this. And then discovering from there, you know, it was then I'd learned obviously Joy Division. I heard I heard um then I bought the enemy because the Smiths were on the cover. Um and through that I found Joy Division. Um I had asked for a video called Your Story, which was, you know, the basically was you know this uh documentary about new order that was how i really discovered joy division and fell in love with them so it was just it was like peeling back the layers of an onion and yes. with every layer i would another pathway another doorway so i was into joy division i found the buzzcocks the, the sex pistols it, it, it's just the amazing way that you can go on a troll a treasure trove troll and come across all of this buried treasure Yes, I mean, and, and there's a lot of it, isn't there? I mean, let's face it. It's um, yes, it's quite. It's, it's yes, you've just got the the delights. So, when did you sort of discover your voice and 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 sort of pick up a guitar and start thinking you were going to be more than just a, a sort of a person, a fan like myself, but actually, you know, making music and singing and being on stage with people like the Darling Buds in in October. Good question. Yeah, I, what happened was I. It was a very short to go from being Oh, you froze. Oh, sorry. You, you slightly you just slightly froze there. Are you able just to go back just a little bit, just a little bit where you um discover the beginning of making music or certainly being, you know, the on the stage? Absolutely, yes. So yeah, so what happened was it was it was a very short hop to go from feeling so overtaken with awe by the Smiths to then wanting, striving to make music myself and to try and because I suppose I had that those late artistic urges and they started to find flight in my mid-teens. And at the start, obviously, you know, being entirely clueless and not being able to play very well, all these things that you have to grapple with. Um, but even right at the very start, I had a singularity of purpose, which when I look back now, it's it's remarkable how that seed was from the very, very get-go. The very first song I wrote, which is a song called Smith Bounces Back, which no one has ever heard. <laughs> but it was inspired by the Australian TV series prisoner cell block h which i was a huge fan of and i found prisoner cell block h an emotional gravitas to the characters and to the storylines and to the hardship that the women had had experienced in that prison and in their lives that had led them to that point and so the very first song i wrote was a character study of the top dog in wentworth women's prison which is Smith, just kind of you know the sort of the 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 um 
the, the, the central figure, the focal point of that series. And when I look at it now, what I've ended up going on to do and base all of my art around, I think it's very interesting that from the very first song I wrote, I had no interest in writing about myself. I was writing a character study of someone else and I'm singing through them. And, you know, in a sense, letting that character sing through me. Um, I didn't know that that, I mean, I didn't sit down and plan this out. It was just, it's, it's what occurred to me to want to write about the very first song. Mm. And then when I look all these years later with what I do, I'm being a concept artist and all of my songs, and all of the material is written about one person, one theme, one thing. And I don't write about myself, which is very unusual. You know, other songwriters particularly seem to have this it's, it never seems to occur to them that there's another way that there is another path possible to drag your dirty washing over the course of of your of your musical canon and yes. make it all about yourself and write about your relationships and your feet like i just feel that the confessional aspect of songwriting has been it's been done to death at this stage i think and that's not to say that that there isn't a place for it input music there is but i think there ought to be there's more to explore and that's one thing that when it when it occurred to me to want to do this like even now i, I can't believe i'm the only person that this occurred to but as far as i know i'm the only person who, who does it and is writing and building a body of work entirely in honor of a murder victim in, in this case inga maria Hauser. Yes. So just tell us on that, because I've been, you know, obviously reading about it on your um, sort of website that you've put together called the Keeley Chronicles. So, yes, this 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 kind of case of a young, very young woman in the 80s gets murdered, doesn't she? Which is the most horrendous kind of, you know, it's depressing to sort of read it. But yeah, are you able just to sort of give us a little bit more background to both that case and how you also sort of came across it yourself? Sure. Well, what happened was I had always had a very strong interest in true crime right back to when I was a young child. I remember being at the age of 10 and buying um, a, a sort of a magazine called Murder Casebook. And the subject of this murder casebook was that of the Yorkshire Ripper and all of the cases that that involved, um, obviously over a six seven year time span. Now, there can't have been too many 10-year-olds. I've never met another 10-year-old <laughs> who would choose to read about the Yorkshire Ripper. So clearly, even back then, even at that age, I had, you know, I was being drawn to the deep end, to quote Jean. And even earlier than that, I mean, Crime Watch UK was my favourite, still is my, my favourite TV show. I don't watch, I don't have a TV, but I, if I will watch anything, I'll, I'll watch archive episodes of Crime Watch UK particularly from 1984 to 1995, which is what I consider the golden years. Uh, <laughs> you know, you have Nick Ross and, and Sue Cook, who are just oh, yes, such yes. fantastic chemistry. And there's just something really, really memorable and very captivating that I find about Crime and UK of that era. So I always had that love of true crime. And then and obviously in my teens, I fell madly in love with music. So using the two, to me, is a very logical thing to do, despite the fact that it hasn't been done. And that's, and it's, I find so, so exciting and so enlivening because, you know, you get these naysayers who will say things like, everything's been done in, in music. And it's, and they often use it as an excuse to retread things and to repeat things and to go on some sort of a retro throwback mission of just, regurgitating the things and, and give you these kind of they'll come up with this claptrap like oh everything's been done before it hasn't they just haven't looked hard enough yes. to my mind um, and that's the thing that inspired me to want to bring those two worlds together um, and where Inga's concerned I had been I'd always been interested in true crime and that interest was there and I'd studied Missing Presumed, which is written by a man named Alan Bailey. He was the national coordinator of Operation Trace. And Operation Trace was a think tank devised by Angarda Siakana, which is the Irish police force. And um, they were looking to try and establish if links could be established between 
six missing persons cases of women gone missing in uh, an area which is known as, or has been termed the vanishing triangle in, in Leinster in Ireland back in the 1990s, between 1993 and 1998. And through the course of this task force, their remit widened to take in other cases that may be relevant to the cases that they were trying to establish links between. And part of their work had involved them enlisting criminal profilers, in this case, Viclas, who are criminal profilers based in the UK. And Viclas had recommended to Mr. Bailey and his team that they look at the case of Inga Maria Hauser. Inga Maria Hauser was a young German student, artist and musician, aged 18, from Munich, Germany, who'd been murdered in Northern Ireland in a very strange, actually unique circumstances back in 1988. Um, Inga was murdered on the night she arrived. It's very odd, the fact that she was murdered getting off a ferry, which is even more unusual. The fact that back in 1988, Inga, her case was the case of its kind, in that it was the first instance of a sexually motivated murder of a tourist in Northern Ireland ever. What's even more incredible is that to this day, 34 years on, it's still the only instance of a sexually motivated murder of a tourist in Northern Ireland ever. There's no other case. And as Detective Chief Superintendent Raymond Murray of PSNI has gone on record as saying, this case is totally out there on its own. So it was that that just captivated me straight away and fascinated me and intrigued me and moved me. The circumstances of Inga's case, when I read about it in this book, now it was only granted, Inga and her, her story was only granted a short chapter towards the end. It wasn't one of the main cases in the book. And the other cases that took the bulk of the book would, would be household names in the south of Ireland, people like Annie McCarrick, Jojo Dullard, uh, Deirdre Jacob, uh, uh, Kira Breen, uh, Fiona Pender, Fiona Sinnott. Uh, but it was somewhat of an afterthought towards the end of this book. The moment I read, I read about it, it just spoke to me. I, I couldn't explain why or how or what it was, but it just grabbed a hold of me. I couldn't let go, and it hasn't let go of me six years later. Um, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I'd go to bed at night, and it'd be on my mind. And I'd wake up in the morning, and it'd be on my mind. I'd see it in my dreams. I remember the first night after reading that book, I went to sleep and I woke up in the middle of the night in tears, which I never do. And I haven't done since, you know, if I go to sleep, I'm out to count. <laughs> but um, this night I, I, I was just really, um, really upset and, and kind of haunted by mm. the what had happened to this person and how it had happened. Um, and, I, and I believe that Inga's case is the saddest and the scariest of all true crime cases. And I know that all of cases have, have their own, obviously have equal merit, but there's just something uniquely disturbing about Inga's case. And, and anyone who really delves into the case and studies it in depth or with any degree of, of depth, I think that will, that will be their likely finding. So it was from that point onwards that I just found myself thinking about her and the case with such an unbridled intensity that I felt I had to do something. I, I, I just had to do something. What could I do? I'm an indie rock musician living in Dublin. I don't come from Munich. I've never been to Munich. I've never been to Northern Ireland at that stage. I'd never you know, written a blog or anything like that. And I just thought, well, this is clearly going to be my thing because I, I'd mentioned her name to quite a few people in Dublin at that time, none of whom had heard of her. So I just assumed that this is just, it's, a, it's, a, it's an old case. At that stage, there had been no new media reports since 2011. And this was 2016 when I had come across it. So I thought, well, I'll publish a blog based on my findings and that'll just be it. It'll just be my own thing. I'll just put it there. So when I started to write what became part one of the Cutie Chronicles, I realised to, to do it justice and to do her memory justice, I would have to really research it. I spent four months researching, gathering as much information as I could, published part one, went off to work that day. I was working in a library at the time. And to my utter astonishment, I found out 
halfway through my shift that part one had gone viral on the first day. To right. my total, I just did utter amazement. Yeah. And that was when I realized that there's a whole groundswell of interest with this case that had never really been tapped into, that had that had never really been galvanized. And 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 I thought that well, I can try and channel this this interest, hopefully, and hopefully try and assist and advance her case, or at the very least, celebrate her and try to reclaim as much dignity for her from the dustbin of history because she had been, you know, she'd become this sort of a tabloid trinket, essentially, you know, where, where mm. she was only known for being, and it's something that a lot of people who have read the Keely Chronicles have, have told me and have actually posted on the comment section of, of the Chronicles that, you know, for many years, she was just known as a backpacker, you know, just this girl that they never really got to know who she was. And that was one of the things that I was most interested in at the start. Who was she? Why was she there? I mean, why would someone from Munich be in, be in Stranraer going to learn? You know, these are places that are quite nondescript. And yet I, I just felt that there was more to it than meets the eye. And, and, that, and I have found out there is a lot more to it than meets the eye. And, and over the last six years, six and a half years, I've, I've embarked on this mission this this obsessive journey to try and discover as much as possible to try and assist and advance and help the case and Inga's memory as much as possible and I've grown so emotionally I suppose I've I've broken I've fallen foul of the ultimate no-no when it comes to investigators or any any of those in an investigative position which is to not become emotionally involved in the case I became so emotionally involved that she became my life. And, but in a, in a way, however painful and harrowing that has been to live on a day-to-day basis and on a, on a nightly basis to the degree that I have been involved and all of the various facets of the case and of my work and activism involving it, I feel, you know, she has become such a part of my life that I can't imagine living without without her, even though I've never met her. It's it's a very strange thing. I'm I'm still trying to figure out exactly what is the, you know, what are the underlying factors for this. Yes. Obviously the the kind of in a weird way, it sort of serves a purpose as well as gives you sort of focus and and sort of like a a channel for your creative songwriting. I mean, with the, I mean, just curious, on the the single that's come out, um, which is titled Shadow on the Hills, the picture, the uh, because I thought, oh, is that going to be you? But it's not, is it? Is that a picture of her or just another, who is it actually? On the front cover or on the on the on the front cover, it's um, that's me. It's you. There you go. With quite a different. <laughs> I couldn't quite. I was thinking. Oh, right. that's, anyway, right. Okay, that's cleared that up. So yes. So obviously, coming in slightly. So the. So she does obviously serve a purpose, though, doesn't she? She does. You. You. You know, is a kind of a two-way relationship. This at the moment. It is, yes. And actually that, that particular uh, artwork, uh, the cover of Shadow on the Hills that you were referring to there, there's a very particular reason why I chose that image to be the front cover. Um, it wasn't just because I thought it was, you know, a nice visual or something. That photo was taken in Clock Mills in County Antrim, which is one of the key locations in relation to Inga's case. And it was taken on the thir- on the 6th of April 2018, which was the 30th anniversary of Inga's murder. Um, so I was driving or was being driven through the heartland of Inga's case. Um, and, you know, very much you know, Inga to me is, is the shadow on those hills. And um, so I thought it was a very fitting image. But yeah, the, there is a strange and it's, you know, I, it's, I think it's a really intriguing thing. Um, this sort of relationship of sorts, which is it's an oddly one sided one because here I am, I'm, I'm with that song, I'm communicating directly with someone who is dead, someone who I never got to meet, but someone who um, I feel a, a connection with and a kinship with, I can't quite explain, but it's, I feel it. So it's, it's obviously there. Mm. Um, and she's still the only 
you know, person that I want to write about and her story, if I can try and give her a voice through my songwriting and through the music that we create in the studio and as and as a live live band, um, then it's something. It's a yes, of absolutely. Story. I mean, do you? Because I mean, tragically, her parents have both died, but she's yeah. got other family. How do you? I mean, do you? Do you sort of feel? That with the, the the sort of input and energy and focus you're doing, do you feel like you might help you know solve the solve the um, solve the mystery? Do you, you know and and sort of have some form of closure? Do you think if you didn't, if no one ever is found and, and there's never a conclusion, do you feel like your life will always be kind of slightly like God? I haven't had that kind of feeling of completion. Um. <laughs> Not so much for me, more so that's I suppose for Inga, because the thing about it is I've always seen from the from the get-go, I've always seen Inga's case really representing two strands. On the one hand, there's the investigative side of things, and Inga's case has, has never been solved definitively, and there's never anyone who has ever been um charged or um certainly well, there, there have been individuals who have been questioned at length and there was sufficient evidence on two specific individuals enough for a file to be submitted to the, to the PBS, which is the Public Prosecution Service of Northern Ireland. There's never been anyone convicted of Inga's murder. No one's ever served time. But I never saw my purpose in terms of Inga's case being solely about trying to solve Inga's case, or even for me, trying to find, I mean, I believe I know who is responsible. The authorities believe they know who is responsible. Um, when I started working on Inga's case, I had no idea that I would ever find out who I believe was responsible. Because the case had gone unsolved for so long, at that stage when I, when I became involved, it had gone unsolved for 28 years. And I felt with all of the information that was available and all of the available facts, that could be ascertained and, and that could be weighed up. I found it sort of inconceivable that someone could be responsible and could have escaped detection in such a close-knit, uh, such a small geographical location. We're talking about villages here. We're talking about very small. Northern Ireland is, a, is, is, a, is really a very small region, um, you know, approximately one million people. And all of the evidence that had been put over and that had led geographical profilers and behavioural profilers to reach firm conclusions were that Inga's killer was someone local to the area, someone who knew Ballypatrick Forest Park well, someone who would have been very familiar with the layout of Ballypatrick Forest. Where Inga's uh, remains were left was not somewhere where someone who didn't have a close connection to the area would even be aware of. It was the, the, the westernmost point of a very large but, but obscure forest, Ballypatrick Forest. It, it's, the, it's the northernmost forest on the island of Ireland. And the part where Inga was left in was the westernmost part. So it's the, the hardest, the, the least accessible part of that forest. So someone with, 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 with real know-how, real... Uh, awareness of that forest and of where they could leave Inga and her remains without being disturbed, without them being um, liable to be detected. Um, having said that, some very strange um, details with regards to how Inga was 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 left, and and it, it is it is very strange some of some of the circumstances of how Inga was found and. The decisions that Inga's killers made when they left her and how they left her—that's that's that's another story. It would take me a very long time to kind of go into. But but I suppose where where I looked at it from was like I was fascinated by her. I was fascinated by the circumstances of the case. I was so deeply moved about what had happened to her, and my heart went out to this person who never got to live her her life, her whole life, her whole adult life had been had been erased before it even had the chance to begin, and I found the weird, the bittersweet qualities 
of her having had this week of wonder and awe and joy, the best week of her life, which is what a week prior to her arriving in Lauren had been. She was, you know, from all of her postcards back home and from her diary entries, we know she was ecstatic. She was having the time of her life. And then for that to swivel so suddenly, so abruptly, so violently, so cruelly into the worst experience of anyone's life. Mm. I just found such a such a, a really um hauntingly bittersweet um scenario. And I suppose where I where I came to it was that if I could try and do something for her mum, who at the time I wasn't aware that her mum was in really ill health. This was because I started working on Inga's case in 2016. And um, Inga's mum had actually suffered a stroke, which led to a heavy dementia in 2014. I wasn't aware of that. It wasn't public knowledge. Um, and, you know, Inga's mum obviously would, would subsequently then pass away um, before I ever had the chance to reach her. I, I did, I, I wrote to her a number of times and her, my, the letters that I'd written to her, which I told her about the chronicles and, and the upsurge of interest in Inga's case, they had been passed on to her, to Inga's nephew, who is Inga's mum's uh, grandchild, which is uh, uh, Victor, Victor Evil. And we subsequently became friends. And um, you know, he, he got in touch with me that way. Um, but I wasn't aware for the first two years I was working on Inga's case that, that Inga's mum wasn't in a position to be conscious, to be cognizant of, of anything. And no. I've read that she had said back in 1989, the, the only time when Inga's mom had actually travelled to Northern Ireland, which was uh, March, uh, I think it was March 4th, 1989, she'd come over in advance of publicity to mark the one-year anniversary of Inga's murder, which, of course, had occurred in April, April 6th, 1988. And through an interpreter, um, Inga's mom, Almut, had said in at the press conference in, in Maidan uh, that day that, I hope the people of Northern Ireland do not forget Inga. And when the Chronicles went viral, I felt, well, this is something I can try and tell her that, that the people of Northern Ireland haven't forgotten her because this blog that I've just started has just gone viral and it's, and it's generated all of this, you know, online activity and sharing and all, all over the world, but particularly in Northern Ireland and, and Scotland. So I was determined to try and tell her this and let her know. And I wasn't aware that she was already past the point of rescue. She was already in a state where she just had lost. She just had, had, had no memory of the past. And it's something that I, I later discovered is quite commonplace amongst um, survivors or, or those who've been bereaved of a loved one through, through very harrowing circumstances. Mm. But for the brain to sort of insulate itself and protect itself um, be beset by um, something like Alzheimer's or something like dementia because it will just give their brain peace. And it's just, it's an, it just adds another layer of mystery onto what is already an incredibly sad case. And the day that I found, the day that I received the email from Victor to tell me that Almut had actually suffered a, this, dementia and that she'd no 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 memory of the past and that she, that it wasn't possible to communicate with her anymore um about Inga. Um I I burst into tears and I hadn't cried since my granny had passed away back in 2015. Um uh you know so yeah it's it's been in a real emotional roller coaster but all of that has gone into the songs and without even without ever planning it to because I didn't know that I would get so emotionally involved in the case. I didn't know that I'd spend six years Searching it and retracing the steps. I didn't plan any of that. I very much followed my heart with it. But like any songwriter, you write about what you're passionate about, what you what you're moved about. And um all of that, all of those experiences that I've had have gone into the song. So there's so much of me in those songs, even though the songs aren't about me, the exception of the glue, which which is Partly about me and partly about Inga. Um, yeah. 
Yes, because you've got the, I mean, it slightly just broke up, but you've got the this release on Dimple Disc Records, which is um, yeah. one of the members of the Undertones, which I can't remember which one now, but um, whip, we get the gist. <laughs> which one? Damien O'Neill. God, actually. Damien O'Neill. Damien, that's the one, um, which is the, the the sort of the mini EP is called Drawn to the Flame. And then the single that's yeah. come out is called Shadow on the Hills, on the Hill. Hills. So, um, yes. So how did you, or how did they discover, or not discover you, but how did you sort of become part of the Dimple Disc Stables? Good question, because ultimately Dimple Discs, the roster sort of consists of, it was started really as a labour of love by Brian, who had formerly worked for, uh, Brian O'Neill, who had formerly worked for Rough Trade uh, during the time of the Smiths. Um, and Mute Records and he'd been the publicist for Nick Cave, Stereolab and Alex Chilton and all these various people um, in the 1980s, 1990s and when he founded Dimble Discs with Damien in the undertones initially it was sort of as Brian would say an, an amiable walk through through life you know musically yes and would involve a lot of friends and acquaintances that Brian had met people that I felt that I think Brian felt he could trust and who he respected as, as artists and it was something you know, very kind of warm and pure and very non-corporate about the whole thing, which is one of the reasons why I, I particularly like being on the label, that there is that family feel and there is that sense of it's not just about, you know, it's not about commerce at all. It's it's really about trying to, as in Brian's words, trying to do something, trying to make something beautiful mm. and, you know, supporting artists to do that, which is an amazing thing. Um so I had released Last Words as a single in October 2020. Um, this was during the pandemic, obviously, and I, I, I didn't know how I was going to go about releasing a record without having any recourse to play live. So I had actually paused. I, I'd held it off from releasing it for six months, waiting for the pandemic to end. But the pandemic never quite ended. No. <laughs> at that time. And I released it in October 2020. And it picked up a lot of airplay in Ireland. And the response was such that I then felt emboldened to release a double A side single, which was The Glitter and the Glue. You never made it that far in February 2021. And I at this stage I was working as my own label. I was doing all of the PR, I was doing all of the um just you know, liaising with DJs. Um doing everything which I had no experience doing but I threw myself in at the deep end and essentially I acted as my own label which I subsequently found is the best way to, to get on a label is to be your own label you know just do it yourself um, and you'll attract people if, if the quality of your work is good enough and if you're you're tenacious enough which I am um, and it was really through the glitter and the glue um, kind of making waves at radio and online, really, it was really through through Twitter. It was Brian um, and, and uh, Dimbledus had, had come across me on on Twitter, um, and I think they they loved the glitter and the glue, and that was really the first. And then, but they'd actually been very supportive, um, just communicating with me over a matter of months, um, which was a lovely way to kind of build a rapport before I actually signed to the label. And then I signed to the label in May of two thousand twenty one. Uh, just a little over a year ago and the rest as they say is history it's great it's fantastic and it's great that um you know playing the single is just fantastic i think you know i think it's a great sort of song so um and and sort of looking forward to to going back and listen to the earlier stuff so yeah so so just going forward you've got some live dates very soon actually one and then one with the darling buds which I always have to smile because I loved the Darling Buds back in the 80s. I mean, what have you got sort of planned, you know, for the, the sort of next 12 months? Well, I'm in a state of perpetual recording because myself and my producer, Alan McGuire, uh, we're very much a unit in the studio and we're just really enthusiastic and driven to create and to, you know, constantly be. Um, toiling on on songs and 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 developing this sonic story um and it's something that I've, i wanted to do my entire life to build 
a discography because I was a massive music fan. And you can see here from yes. <laughs> by, by the, the kind of labyrinth of, of musicology that I have in my flat here. Um, it's I've got you know, I'm surrounded by 40 murals depicting the artworks of 40 separate bands that I love. And the, the artwork, I mean, I, I consider sleeve art, you know, album art, artwork, the highest art form possible. I mean, give me the cover of Power Corruption and Lies over the Mona Lisa any day. Give me a, a Peter Saville over a Renoir. Give me a, you know, a, a, one of one of the style of rouge sleeves for Saint Etienne over over some sort of a Monet. You know what I mean? It's like I just I'm in love with indie music culture and with 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 all of the elements that make up the the, the beautiful um soulful um art that is music and all of these bands um that I cherish. And getting to kind of create my own discography is something that is really a, a lifelong urge. Yes. So over the next year, basically, um, I, I've there's certain uh, things I'm determined to do. One of them is I'm determined to release an album every year for the remainder of my life. So say every year, um, certainly for the next 20 years, um, I want to release an album every year and I'm very conscious I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a very prolific songwriter but I never want that prolific tendency to be a hindrance I only want it to be a positive thing so I don't believe in, in overloading people you know you, you get these songwriters sometimes that are too prolific for their own good and they have I'm thinking of a couple in particular <laughs> well I suppose Prince wasn't it it's always the so, one isn't it Prince I I love Prince and I actually I, I would give Prince a pass because the quality of his work was so high and I think he was such a force of nature um, and the quality of his recordings were so high that I actually would would allow you know I'd, I'd cut Prince some slack if I may. <laughs> I'd say okay say, say the, the Brian Jones 10 Oscar that cat who releases or, or did release five albums a year I mean of questionable quality um, or you know very quality control I have a, you know, I would have a bit more of a dinner on, on that because I mean, like I could release five albums in a year, but it, it would it would be to the detriment of the songs. It would be to the detriment of of our of our audience because you know I think it's very important that that every release that comes out is, is special and that each song is given a chance to shine in its own way in its own time. And also, bring is concerned in the story is so multifaceted and is so i think very uh, very immersive and it's a very special story and she was a very special person and i think i kind of owe it to her to kind of tell her story and reveal it in such a way that that those that are heading to absorb it actually have a chance to absorb it before there's too much more um released so i think releasing an album every year is is what i want to do and and obviously as well and that will allow us to hopefully you know tour more more widely and and um obviously then obviously promote records and so on but so really over the next year it's just going to be um you know i mean next year that this this that the next album you know will be next year i, I think i one of the things i loved about the smiths was the fact that each year, and, and bands like, say, The Smiths or OEM, who certainly in their early years, they would release an album every year. So you could associate that year with one of their records. It would colour that year. So yes. For example, you'd Murmur in 1983, you'd Reckoning in 1984, you'd Fables of the Reconstruction in 1985, you'd Life's Rich Pageant in 1986, you'd Document in 1987, you'd Green in 1988. And, and of course, then obviously they signed to Warners and then they ended up in a scenario where, you know, inevitably then they're, they're having to tour and promote in a different way. And then the productivity does slow down somewhat. But one of the great things about being on an indie label is that you're not at the mercy of the sort of the, the corporate codology so much. So hopefully I'll just get to continue releasing one album a year, every year, and build this uh, beautiful batch of albums 
and by the way, say the Smiths, 1984, Meet Us Murder, 1985, The Queen Is Dead, 1986, Strangers Recom, 1987, Rank, 1988, obviously that's a live album. Um, obviously, <laughs> Morrissey proved too, too exhausting for, for Johnny to be able to spend more than five years in a band with him. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they could have gone on, you know, but that's one thing, you know, hopefully, I mean, I, I've tried to learn from from the books. I mean, I, you know, I've read, I mean, I've generally all my life only ever read two kinds of books, mm, books about bands and books on true crime. And in the books about bands, you see the same stories, the same pitfalls, the same pratfalls recurring repeatedly. And I always wanted to try and guard against those things. And I always wanted to try and avoid those mistakes. So for that reason, you know, I'm, I'm, I try and live in a way that is entirely in service to the music. So I only do what is going to help the music. So I don't, I don't drink. I don't. You know, I don't, um, I don't have, you know, relationships. Or anything. I don't have anything that would, that would, that that would derail my focus, which has to be on the music. And it's something that I think Johnny Moore has now that he, he's very, very much, you know, obviously he's vegan and he, he doesn't drink, he doesn't smoke. He's, he's, he, he, he puts himself in a position where he can be as, as creative as possible. And I think he's learned, you know, through, maybe being the other way, that the way that is most suitable for him and most viable for him. And I feel I kind of don't really need to go through my drug hell to quote, mm-hmm. you know, or my booze hell to quote Cheggers uh, <laughs> to kind of learn what is the best way to be because I just know how creative I already am and how creative I've been living as I am just in a pure way, just not, not getting involved in anything that would sap my energy or sap my strength, or sap my focus, or derail me from what I need to do on this earth, which is create this body of work. There you go. This is amazing. Well, look, thank you ever so much. Uh, this has been amazing. I'm going to have to go to bed in a bit, actually. <laughs> but but um, this has been brilliant, and um, this is and great, and I'm so pleased that Ben sorted this out for uh, Nicholas. Nick, that's Nick. it, not Ben. But, yeah, I mean, if you want, I can always... Um, when I put this together, I can always give you the link and you can always put it on your social media platform sites, mm-hmm. which is always good. But look, I've really loved the, you know, the, 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 the single, which is fantastic. And um, yes, looking forward to hearing more. But now that um, I'm going to have to sort of not have to, but, you know, go back and read all your stories about Inga and um, yes, feel slightly depressed about it as well. So there you go. But hopefully there'll be, do you think there'll ever be a slightly a closure to it? Well, the thing is, you know, I was very, very optimistic at one stage back in 2018. Um, I mean, one of the things that I that I did try and do in terms of trying to solve Inga's case, or rather trying to have her solve it, I got the idea because I had become aware that Inga had made a tape recording of herself playing music because Inga was a guitarist and she was a singer and she had a beautiful voice. And I got the idea that what if I could get hold of that tape, if I could publish that tape or a song from it, maybe I could try to reach, because I became aware that there was someone who was in a position to assist the inquiry, who, um, was withholding evidence um, who had had a degree of involvement in Inga's murder and whose conscience was bothering them. And they had made certain disclosures, um, but they were reluctant and ultimately had proved unwilling to formulate that witness testimony in a court of law. It's what they would need to do. So I thought, well, what if I could reach that person? So. Back in 2017, November 2017, I had published a recording of Inga singing a song called Greensleeves on my blog. It's in part 13 of my blog, which again went viral and, and I put that out. And I was trying to get that person to hear it because I, the, my thinking was if, she, and this person was a, was a woman, if she could hear Inga singing, that surely 
that would be the tipping point. Because if, if someone's conscience is bothering them to that degree, to hearing a thing would be, I would imagine, would be the clincher because you, yes. cannot, you cannot listen to Inga's voice and not feel utterly moved and, and, and touched, no matter how dastardly you may have been to have become involved in a supportive role in her murder back in 1988. So that's the, the, the kind of my main contribution to trying to solve Inga's case. That was it. And I, I'm so glad I, I tried it. Um, ultimately, it didn't work. But I'm so glad I tried it because at least it, had I not done it, I would have always thought, well, what if? Um, but with regards to Inga's case, I was very confident back in 2018 when uh, two men, uh, very, very central to inquiries, uh, were arrested and held for several days and questioned at length in relation to the murder of Inga Maria Hauser. Um, and then when one of those men was rearrested in February 2019, um, and questioned, and there had been an application made for that individual to be questioned and held for an additional 14 hours, which was granted. Um, and then obviously the, the PPS received, I, I actually attended a meeting with the PPS and with the late John Dollett of the STLP, who had campaigned for many years uh, for justice for Inga, and with Inga's lawyer, uh, sorry, Inga's family's lawyer, um, Claire McKeegan of Phoenix Law, which is, a, which is a human rights law firm based in Barbados. The three of us had attended a meeting with the PBS that left us very hopeful that because at, at that stage they had actually read the summary of the evidence file, although not the evidence file itself. That was August of 2019. Uh, but it took a further year for almost a year from that point for the evidence file to be, for the outcome of the deliberation of the evidence file to emerge, which was that charges would not be forthcoming. Um, because this, simply because the, the threshold for murder conviction is incredibly high. Um, and in order for it to be able to proceed, uh, the PBS would have to feel that there was a reasonable chance of prosecution. Um, which in a case like Ingus is very difficult given the passage of time, given Disputed with uh, disputed uh, pathologist's testimony um, and other complications in relation to DNA. It's, Inga's case is very complex. People always think it's, it's more simple than it is. Um, so I'm less hopeful now than I was, certainly, since the PBS made their decision in 2020. Um, however, I've always felt that Inga's case is more than just about justice. It's, it's more than having someone stand up in a court of law and be made to atone for what they did to her. Um, that is obviously very much desirable and something that I dearly wish with all my heart could happen. But I always felt like this case was a bit more than that. And it, it, a lot of it, to me, is about something, something that her killers can never take from her and can never deny her, and that the justice system has no bearing over, which is her legacy. And part of what I do is to try and sustain that legacy and to try and grow that legacy. And whether it's with the Kitty Chronicles blog, whether it's with my songs, whether it's with my live performances and, and telling the audience better every night that I play, um, it's trying to ensure that her journey through life stands for more than her being left to die in that field, in that forest back in April 1988, that, that she can live on and she has lived on. I mean, the fact that we're having this conversation now in the year 2022, even with her parents, both having left the world, she's still in the world mm. you know, she's still, and she's in every one of those songs. And every time I sing about her, she's alive. And Bob Dylan said one of the most beautiful things that I've ever heard anyone say when he said that the highest purpose of art is to inspire. So even though Inga didn't get to make an album, even though she didn't get to uh, tour or be in a band, she's inspired a whole body of work that I'm creating. So she's fulfilled the highest purpose of art. So therefore, to my mind, her life was completely meaningful and, and worthwhile. And it would have been anyway, but, but you know, 
it's even more meaningful and even more worthwhile because she's fulfilled the highest purpose of art. And um, we'll leave it there. That's um, me in conversation with Keely Moss, who, um, as I probably mentioned at the beginning, goes by the name of just Keely. It keeps life simple. And I do believe she has a support date with the Darling Buds on the 8th of October in London, Islington 02 Academy. Um, you can find her also on social media. And as I mentioned at the beginning as well, she has also done a website which is called The Keely Chronicles, which is really worth checking out. The new single, Shadow on the Hills, is on Dimple Disc Records. So, um... It's all good stuff, an amazing artist. Anyway, look, this has been the C86 Show, David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And all these have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week and stay safe. <laughs>